0: Welcome to CHQ&A, the podcast of Chautauqua Institution, where we continue conversations that begin on stages and porches across the institution grounds for even deeper insight into the work and thought processes of those who shape the Chautauqua experience. I'm Jordan Steves, recording in the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the Chautauqua grounds. Our guest this episode is Trevor Cox, a professor of acoustic engineering at the University of Salford. Professor Cox's research and teaching focuses on architectural acoustics, signal processing, and audio perception. He's written several books for academics and the general public, most recently, The Sound Book, The Science of the Sonic Wonders of the World, and Now You're Talking, Human Conversation from the Neanderthals to Artificial Intelligence. A former senior media fellow at the UK's Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, Professor Cox has presented 25 documentaries for BBC Radio and has been featured on BBC One, Teachers TV, Discovery, and National Geographic channels. One of his most popular interviews concerned the debunking of the myth that a duck's quack doesn't echo. He has also written for New Scientist and The Guardian and runs a website that hosts experiments to test people's responses to sound, sound101.org which hosted the popular experiment on the worst sound in the world. Professor Cox joined our Christopher Daly for an in-studio conversation on July 23rd, shortly after delivering a lecture in the Chautauqua Amphitheater as part of a week themed The Life of the Spoken Word.
1: Good morning, everybody, on another beautiful Chautauqua day. My name is Dr. Christopher Daly. I am the head of audio for the Chautauqua Amplitheater at Chautauqua Institution, and I am here this morning with Dr. Trevor Cox, professor of acoustic engineering at Salford University. So um, what I'd like to discuss, if it's okay, Dr. Cox, is um, just tell us kind of, we were talking about this at lunch yesterday, just tell us kind of how you got, what kind of got you to the point you are at in your research now, and kind of where your undergraduate and graduate work was done how you kind of came up for your idea for your dissertation you know that kind of thing just as well as you can describe your journey up to this point that got you to us
2: yeah acoustic engineering is a strange subject because whenever you you say the name you then have to explain what it is because people think of guitars and acoustic guitars but acoustics is the science of sound so I was a scientist originally I studied physics at Birmingham University that's Birmingham in the UK um but I was also a musician and that's common of lots and lots of people who work in acoustics that they're also musicians and not, you know, not professionally, but as amateurs. And I just decided to combine my hobby and my, uh, my work to become work in acoustics. And I started off actually in, in room acoustics in designing treatments that have gone into various concert halls and studios around the world, um, to improve the sound of those spaces. And, and then, you know, Worked in lots of different areas of sound over the years, ranging all the way from, you know, how should cities uh, sound to, to make them more pleasant, all the way through to designing classrooms so the teachers and pupils can hear each other, all the way through to building a model of Stonehenge at 1 to 12 scale. Can you describe what your dissertation was about? Yeah, so when you get a room, like take a big grand concert hall, you have to very carefully shape and treat the surfaces so it sounds beautiful. And actually, if you look at the amphitheatre here, you'll find down the side walls near the stage, you'll find these sort of vertical bars, a sort of crinkly wall. That's a diffuser. And actually, my uh, acoustic uh, PhD was on diffusers. So they're a bit like, instead of having a flat surface, you have a crinkly surface, and it's a bit like taking a mirror and frosting it. It breaks up the image, in this case, the sound image. And it's one of the ways you treat a room to get rid of aberrations and things that don't quite sound right.
1: Okay, what um uh your last did that dissertation eventually become a book and how many and w- what have been the uh how many books have you written firstly
2: well i've written well, i've written, i've been involved in a few but i've written uh-huh. three i guess in okay. number so my phd ended up being a, a a textbook effectively which is used very widely by people in industry and in universities who work on acoustic treatments um and it's in its third edition. But I wouldn't recommend it as a light read. It's full of lots of equations <laughs> and lots of technical stuff. So it's certainly for the audio nerd. Um, but then I've also written two popular science books. So popular science being that uh, kind of non-fiction that you would take to the beach and read on the beach. So it's got no equations in and it's there really to tell the stories behind things. So there's lots of facts and te- techie stuff in there but actually what really drives it is
1: narrative and story in the same way as that any book does. What are you working on in the future? The or, well, or, uh, the void, the void um, remind me the title of your book. Now You're Talking. We, now You're Talking, yesterday. And so um, do you have a project lined up now that that one's wrapped up? I don't particularly have any book projects
2: lined up at the moment I'd like to write another one Uh, I've got to come up with the right idea it's a huge amount of work to write a popular science book Um, and I need to really have the nugget of the right idea so currently I'm pitching podcast ideas I've got a couple of BBC radio programs coming up so I'm switching back to audio at the moment in terms of of delivery and then I've got quite a few research projects on the go which are occupying quite a lot of time so um, for example. Obviously, I'm fascinated by the voice. One of the issues you have with voice is speech that is unintelligible. We face that when we go into a a railway station or you turn the television on and the actors mumble. And so we've got various projects about how to improve
1: speech intelligibility. And that's actually where my research touches the book, Now You're Talking. Which is actually directly relevant to the space you were so so gracious to speak to us in yesterday. And the amphitheater's two-thirds of its program, of scheduled programming, effectively, Our spoken word programming, both at our nine fifteen religious service, ecumenical religious service, and our ten forty five lectures. And for me, um, I've got to give a talk about this tomorrow. Actually, the what's a really interesting history and knowing spaces like you know them. I wonder if you could elaborate on it. You know, you go back to, let's say the, well, let's say the turn of the century, nineteen hundred. There is no widely distributed electrical amplification systems for sound so you know much like you were discussing opera singers yesterday you had to be really trained in kind of classical rhetorical oratory technique to get your message intelligibly heard in a space like that um and then you know slowly slowly we've added you know loudspeaker here a microphone there a d- digital to analog converter and analog to digital converters there some EQ there to kind of get it to the point it is now, headset microphones, condenser microphones. Can you kind of describe or do, um, the history of how that, when that cultural phenomenon of amplified amplified voice, where the microphone, the amplifier, and the loudspeaker kind of mediate the voice to human ears, can you kind of describe the history of that in a broader context for us? Yeah, I guess... I guess the microphone
2: is probably as old as Chautauqua is in terms of it's it's invented. I I can't remember the exact date, but if I guessed the 1870s, I'm probably not that far off. But actually, in terms of widespread, ubiquitous use and loudspeakers to go with them, we're probably talking 1920s is really when you started getting public address systems and therefore you could start having these mass rallies. And, of course, very famously, the Third Reich exploited very effectively such public address systems and, and put a lot of money into them as a way of, of running those mass rallies. You couldn't have run those mass rallies at the Third Reich because the person, you know, Hitler, or, oratory, wouldn't have been audible before. So it's kind of that time period, we're talking about, roughly about 100 years ago and a little less, where we start getting microphones and amplification uh, influencing what's going on, and it really changes things Um I mean, the Third Reich is a, a very sad example of that, but it's, it's also made some real differences to uh, everyday things. So if you go and watch a program on Netflix, you'll notice there's much more naturalistic accents now. We're not all talking in the sort of very sort of theoretical voice. You go back 50 years and everything on the television, everyone in Britain was talking in a very RP voice, like they were on stage, because that's how they were taught to be.
1: Remind us what RP is.
2: Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, RP is received pronunciation. So if you think of a British accent, uh, particularly the Queen, that's received pronunciation.
1: It's a bit like how I talk,
2: but um, I, I'm, I'm not completely RP. Uh, My mum very much is. But, uh, uh, yeah, so it's that traditional British accent that the the, um, ruling classes and universities used to use. Um, And and actors used to use them on stage. And and if you went to a theatre, you know... Back 50 years ago, I don't sure how far it would be on Broadway, people would be projecting their voices. But now with microphones, you can have your actors using the full range of their voice. They can, they can whisper, they can shout, they can really show the emotion because on the microphone you can pick up the crack in their voice which wouldn't be audible at the back of a, a Broadway theatre without it. And so you now get a much sense of much more intimacy being closer to the stage. So that's one way... The microphones and
1: amplifications have changed changed the voice. It's actually made acting more naturalistic, and individualistic. Correct, because as you were demonstrating with um, in your example with putting the opera singer, um, uh, her name is escaping Montserrat me. Montserrat okay. example, yeah. My, uh, op- but against Freddie Mercury, you can you can you know it's a much more like you said. You know, opera singers and orators had to conform to a very st- standardized kind of practice to mediate themselves versus Freddie Mercury, who everybody knows that voice immediately when it's sang close into a microphone. Almost everybody.
2: Yeah, if you take an opera singer trained to sing the grand operas of Wagner, uh, a a particular voice like soprano, they will sound different, but not that different. If you took a female voice singer-songwriter from pop charts, there's a huge variety of voices that are there, and that's because they can sing, effectively, a lot quieter, and therefore they can manipulate their vocal anatomy in lots of different ways, and therefore, they can have very different sounding voices, um, whereas an opera singer, obviously, if the melody line isn't beautiful and if it's not powerful, they're not going to succeed. So they have to conquer that first, and then the variations they can achieve then are are much smaller. Um, so, you know, these naturalistic voices that we hear more and more now are great, but they also cause intelligibility issues. Um, more and more people are using subtitles to watch television now, and it's not just the hearing impaired. It's because, Including me. Yeah, it's not just the hearing impaired, it's actually because people are talking and they're t- talking a bit more natural. I mean, when you have a conversation like we're having here, words get missed. And you go, oh, uh, and, and, and people repeat them. And we all know that. But once you get on television, you don't have that conversation to correct people. And so when words are missed because they're talking naturalistic, they're missed completely. And hence, people tend to use subtitles.
1: Well, and as the, the, more, the more elderly our population becomes, you know, consume, consuming those kinds of media... It's I, basically I've told my father to start turning them on all the time now because when when he's watching a DVD because it just makes it a lot easier for him.
2: Yeah, it's a big driver behind our research at Salford is is the aging population because mm. you know it is. You know the number of people who have uh, who are deaf in the uk or have some of hearing impairment is going up. I'm sure it's true in the US as the population ages it, unfortunately for nearly everyone it's an inevitable part of aging that you gradually lose your hearing. It's a kind of a fact of life unfortunately we, we don't regenerate our inner ear hair cells and therefore
1: they just gradually um, get worse and worse. What, what are some of the developments you've seen, you know, as far as helping? Up? We just had a week last week um, with the Stanford Center on Longevity, kind of co- in partnership with them. So, you know, certainly um, the audience that was interested in that would be interested in hearing what developments, if any, there are to kind of get over this problem of intelligibility. Because, I mean, that's that's effectively, from a philosophical point, right, that's almost like drop being dropped out of human contact with people if you're constantly struggling to hear Mm. you know what you know what a large part of what makes us human which is linguistic exchange you know that that is very kind of soul soul crushing to think about on a Tuesday morning so what's what's being developed that you know of to kind of help with that
2: yeah and to add to your point before before I answer your question specifically there's now been shown a link between hearing loss and dementia and where the causation lies is, is debated, but one causation is you lose your hearing, you therefore find it difficult to socialise, Going in Britain going down the pub or going down the bar here, um, and therefore you withdraw, and that that is a risk factor than in dementia. Now they're not sure that's the process the hearing goes and that. Makes dementia worse, or your hearing goes, and therefore you're having less signals in the brain. And therefore, your brain isn't being stimulated as much. It could be the other way around. It could be the dementia harms the hearing, and they don't actually know which way it is. But certainly, there's a lot of interest in understanding hearing for lots of reasons. And this dementia study, there's been a couple of them now, uh, gives even more sort of oomph to that. In terms of solutions, it's difficult because in the end, what's happening with most of the hearing. The age-related hearing is it's damaged the inner inner ear or just aging of the inner ear. Uh, I guess if it's really bad, I mean, one of the big advances and amazing developments in hearing technology is the cochlear implant, which has given hearing to people um, that we had no cure for before. Now, the hearing is not perfect when they get it, But it's just amazing what that can do for people. It's not something you would normally do with age-related hearing loss because age-related hearing loss is not so bad that you start mucking around with cochlear implants. So there's sort of various approaches, um, but things like just improving what hearing aids do, how they process sound. So when you go into a bar, it changes how it it processes the the sounds so you get a cleaner signal. And that's the kind of things that I would work on. Um, I mean, there are medical advances, but none of them are yet, It's a point of treatment, like stem cell treatments are being uh, uh, experimented with. Because what happens is we have these hair cells which respond to the sound in our inner ear, and they just don't regenerate in in us, unfortunately. But there are animals they do regenerate in. So they're trying with stem cell therapy to kick-start the regeneration. We're all used to our our skin keeps regrowing. It just happens the inner hair cells don't. So trying to regenerate them from learning from animals where it does happen is one really good line of attack. But nothing... There are animals where that does happen? Yeah. Can yeah. you name some of those species? No, you really got me on that. I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I, I think actually for, in mammals, I'm trying to remember if there's other mammals, but it's right. human, it's relatively rare.
1: I think in birds, but don't please yeah. hold me to it. Okay, but, but, there, but there are there are some. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Well, and the, the cochlear implants, we've seen you know, a couple of our patrons come in with those, and it's just an eighth-inch headphone jack that can plug right into our um, assisted listening system system that we're required to have um through the americans for disabilities act and i've also seen several uh, helped it's been kind of a fascinating reveal some of our patrons actually have hearing aids that interact with software on their iphone or tablet that can kind of as you described modify you know equalization and compression parameters so depending on depending on their Mm -hmm. setting so um i'm gonna i'm gonna quote Kent Brockman, the newscaster from The Simpsons and, you know, open with this, you know, at the risk of being unpopular, this this broadcaster puts the blame squarely on you, the listeners. And what I mean by that is, you know, are, have we, even though we've gotten kind of ability to hear individual voices and individual and more kind of nuanced performances, have we gotten worse at listening to each other? And I only hypothesize that in that, you know, you're constantly. Th- my job was this for a little bit in New York City, where you know everything is hyper, hyper compressed to take dynamic range out of stuff, so that broadcasters and makers of commercials and music can win lo- what were called the loudness wars. And so you, there's just so little dynamic range that is nuanced into television or advertising or radio or MP3s or CDs or whatever. Have we kind of do? You, have any take on whether that's made us worse listeners as a species in kind of advanced Western economies? There's no
2: evidence that all this listening to electronically processed sounds as making us worse listeners. I mean, it's interesting that people tend to assume when you talk to them, they're not, you know, when I'm not a specialist listener, but actually just listening to my voice now and decoding the speech is hugely complicated. And so actually we're all really good listeners. And actually when people talk about not being good listeners, it's normally you're not paying attention. Uh, rather than it being a deficit mm. in the brain or in the ear or anything, um, and the studies that have looked at—I uh, think of one study, uh, American study that looked at comparing younger people comparing high-quality audio to, you know, lower-quality stuff—and kind of there's a kind of feeling in the audio community that the youngsters don't know what real quality sounds like, but they all preferred the higher-quality stuff. Sure. Um, what we got to remember from acoustic point of view, there's there's more to an, an experience than just the audio, and so the convenience of being able to have million and one songs on your Uh, your phone trumps the let's have the highest quality possible and that's also true interesting enough, for venues like the amphitheatre and you I mean you changed it a few years ago and one of the things that changes it changes the mystique it changes the history of the place even if you built an identical amphitheatre people would feel that it changed and actually what makes a great venue is not just the acoustics the acoustics have to be right but there's lots of other things that makes a great venue. And a really good example from that is in Britain. So some of some people listening to this may have been to the proms at the Royal Albert Hall, if they're lucky. I mean, from an acoustic point of view, that venue is, um, I don't want to be really rude, but it's, you know, by any measure, it's not very good. Okay. But you can go in here. This is the
1: circular one yeah, over in uh, Kent, around Kensington.
2: I yeah, it's right near Hyde Park. Yeah. It's up near the Albert Memorial. Big round building. Mm-hmm. It has mushrooms hanging down from the ceiling, it's famous for. Um, And they've done various things. It's never going to be perfect. It's far too big for orchestral music. But you can go and see some great concerts because it's just an amazing place to go into. Um, So it's a good lesson for us acousticians that it's not all about sound, uh, which is a good lesson. I do think one thing about listening is that I think people who are, are struggling with listening could help themselves a bit more. And I think one thing we do see is the number of people using hearing aids who could benefit from them, uh, who don't. And in Britain, it's about one in three people who would actually greatly be helped by hearing aids don't use them. And it's because of the stigma that it's a sign of,
1: of age, it's a sign of uh, disability. Um, are they covered under NHS? Yeah, we can get...
2: We, um, oh.
1: Because cost might be a factor
2: too. Cost might be. I think it's you point. probably are covered on the NHS. It's interesting because in uh, National Health Service is generally free, but there are a few things like uh, like um, opticians and stuff that you still have to pay for unless you're on benefits. Um, so I don't know about hearing aids. would be the honest, answer. Um, but certainly, people who don't use them because and it's a, it's a sort of cultural factor. It's, you know they are fiddly and small to use. Old ones didn't used to work very well. Uh, If you go to the wrong place, you get prescribed ones which don't work very well. It puts you off, but actually, a well prescribed hearing aid for most people—not everyone, but most people with a hearing loss—will help. And um, but they don't use it for whatever reason. And and that's you know. So I think there are technologies. You know, if people are struggling in the amphitheater, I mean, they should be plugging via a loop system straight into the feed from the microphones. Take the room out, and you'd suddenly have a much
1: better sound quality. Which we do. We do have. We do have the system in place where a microphone has a direct feed to yeah. a transmitter, to a radio receiver with an with an induction loop necklace, yeah. and that induction loop can go directly, if you have what's called a telecoil hearing aid system, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure if it's a specific trademark or if that's just its general name, it it will go basically, it's as straight a pipe from the stage yeah, to yeah. the ear as we can kind of currently offer. But people who do take advantage of it tend to be pretty happy with it. Yeah, because... Once they figure out how to switch... How to switch it to that mode.
2: Yeah, and I don't, I don't know the technology, but you could probably plug into that with a pair of headphones and a smartphone probably as well.
1: Yeah, right? there are those now too. Yeah. yeah there, there, are tele, there are telecoil management systems on an on a iPhone I was just reminded of and shown last week by a patron who was trying to, <laughs> trying to have me help them. Yeah, I mean, setting,
2: using, I mean like all technology, there's always going to be the battle with how, how to get it to work, but that would make quite a difference. It's interesting listening to Ira
1: Glass in the, in the amphitheater and did you hear that? Were you here when that, yeah. That show? Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's kind of tell me what you thought of that show and hit, both his performance and our technological mediation of that
2: performance. I mean, our glass was brilliant. I mean, it was funny because I sat watching it. Where were you sitting? I was sat right near the desk. Now, so one of the tricks Uh, of uh, being an audio engineer is where to sit is near the desk, because that's where the sound engineer like you is. And so, if there's any sound Mm. defects, it's unlikely to be near the desk. Mm. (laughs) So it's always the best place to choose, in my opinion. Uh, So I sat right behind you. I was watching
1: over the desk and seeing... Strangely enough, where you're sitting, no, but where I'm sitting, it, it there's a real hard corner of cement and cement and uh wall there. And so there's a little bit of a bass trap there. Yeah. But it it's not unworkable, but yeah. it's a, there's a little bit of a bass trap where I sit. I, I often get asked uh, you know, by the media festivals where to sit and it's usually
2: <laughs> unless you want to go right down the front to get a good view, go and stand near the sound desk is usually a good as good starting point for a good sound. Um so yeah, so I, I was slightly um Worried, maybe the right word, by our glasses performance because it was so good. And I think, God, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to do this on Monday. And he was just so witty, had so much good material. And yeah, it, so from a pure performance point of view and analyzing what he did, it was a really a delight. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And um, yeah, it's interesting when you go to performances because sometimes you go along just to enjoy them, and sometimes you go along with an analytical
1: head because you're thinking of your own performance. And I, I must admit, I was being very analytical there. It's, I'm in the same, it's very, it's, very hard to go to a show for me and just purely enjoy the show. Like, you know, I have to kind of really consciously bracket out, like, stop listening for mm-hmm. EQ. What's that? Rig? What, what rig are they using? Oh, I don't like Yeah, you just, it's tough to be kind of in the moment once you kind of know all that stuff.
2: It was very funny when I wrote The Sound Book, which is this book about touring around the world, finding the most amazing sounds in the world, because I, I needed to be able to, you know, I went on, you know, for example, in the Southwest. Uh, Arizona um, California, anyway in the deserts down there I went on one of those, those sand dunes which you sit on and it avalanches and it booms and so when you go and do that you want to write, be able to write about the experience in a very sort of human way but mm. you're also going to have to explain the science and actually I found going doing these sort of tours you had this moment where you go right I must remember to actually experience this and not just be thinking about have I got a good recording <laughs> do I know what's going on have I noted where we were you know I actually go well what's it like as a human being right I had to kind of alert that anyway so our Glass was interesting and just from a Uh, entertainment but also from a professional point of view Um, in terms of sound it was interesting and I think one of the interesting things of the sound was his sound samples which had come down a mobile phone line you know he was playing a couple
1: of them uh, some of them were some of the best voice samples i've worked with and he was very co- good about consciously kind of riding levels from his control yeah. device but yeah describe your reaction to the to the yeah. ones that came down the cell phone
2: line. yeah so the ones which were poor were when he's playing back something from from american life and obviously that recording being taken down the phone line and it was not the greatest of quality maybe the person had slightly shouted down the phone so it was slightly distorted and then when the, you know so you're starting with a sound sample which isn't best And then, of course, you add the amphitheater. A room always is going to create issues. Um, And so, you know, there was points at which it went beyond where I could quite, you know, I was struggling. Now, remember, I'm working a second language there. I'm working American, not English. And we're two countries separated by a common language. So I have that added problem that I'm having to pick up the nuances of American. So it's probably not as bad for an American. Uh, I mean, when I performed, one thing I was really conscious, I tried my best to do, was to do what I do on the World Service when I broadcast and I'm not doing it very well this morning and that is you talk slower and you move your mouth by an exaggerated amount and that means your enunciation is much clearer which which he's doing now for us yeah if the difference isn't clear I'm wasting my time (laughs) <laughs> so yeah you learn to to talk in a much more sort of yeah the producers say can you move your mouth more and that really means just get all the articulators exaggerating all the vowel sounds so they're clearer when I were glass
1: it's, it's, talk, talks at a relatively fast clip you yeah know, he slowed down didn't he then he speeded up he, he, he well he, asked, he did ask the audience like how he was doing which mm. was nice of him you know he basically asked the audience how he was doing and he, and he slowed down my experience is though that that people kind of go only get out of their groove for a minute and then they, then everybody tends to kind of go back to their, go back to their comfort place. And, but you know, there's, there's a production concern there where, you know, people like Ira Glass have a lot to say and only so much time to say it in, you know, if you're, and you've been in radio yourself where you're, you know, you've got set amount of time in your segment and like how, how fast, how many syllables do you want to cram together yeah. To get yep. content in. And yeah. I mean, I wonder if you can speak to kind of the balance of that, to like intelligibility and real kind of you know, emotionally modulated performance versus kind of just going syllable after syllable after syllable, clip after clip after clip to kind of get all the content you want in a segment.
2: Yeah, I think trying to rush through more words in the time is, is self-defeating. Okay. In my opinion. Uh so I'm I'm back to when I go back to the UK, I'm recording a script for Radio 4 documentary on auditory illusions which was got to be delivered in two days time so we're scripting tomorrow while I'm jet lagged and the audio all the interviews we've got are long because we've got some great content and so the producer sent me this said make the script short so we need to minimize the script so we've gone and done these interviews so I've gone and talked to someone about the illusion number one uh, and I've gone to talk to... We interviewed the drummer from King Crimson about rhythm illusions, and I've got to get between those two segments with a join at some point. Mm. And we've got to make those as short as possible because we want to maximise the interviews because they're more interesting than the because script. Because they the, they're the hook that's yeah. going the list, Yeah, right? you want to hear to the, 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 you know, Bill Burford from King Crim Crimson, you want to hear him, not me, talk about things. Um, and so, yeah, I think where I learnt economy so when, when I came, went on stage on Monday so I, seeing hourglass and talk slowly and I thought ah, Americans listening to an English accent okay that's going to be something I need to think about my thoughts all the way through were fewer words as well as slower hmm. and I, I guess where I really learnt that is a few presentations where you've got very limited time isn't there a famous quote isn't there if you, if you want me to talk for now you know, give me five minutes preparation but if you want to talk for 15 minutes Give me an hour
1: to prepare. That sounds like I yeah. can't describe is it, that. But it's Oscar like... Wilde or something. It's one of those. <laughs> it sounds well. I don't know if Oscar, Oscar Wilde. Wilde was on the presentation circuit. I'm, I'm going to say but... it I'm going to say it's <laughs> Einstein, and it's not because every me. quote on the internet attributed oh. to
2: Einstein is mostly wrong. Anyway, it's a famous quote. Um you sure? I can't remember who Where are fact-checkers? I think we're supposed to... <laughs> well, well, yeah, in America. You can just turn it off to your fact-checkers to sort out. That's weird when you work with America and then you do a journalistic thing and they to ring you up to check the facts. And they said, it <laughs> doesn't happen in Britain. <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, it caught, uh, I did a TED Talk once, for example. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, TEDx. I know you've got fifth, 13, I mean, it's or sort of 15, I can't remember what it is. I also did something called FameLab, which is uh, like x-factor for science communicators and so they were you know you were given short than that you had five minutes I think or three minutes and it's like you wrote the story you wanted to tell and it was 15 minutes long so mm-hmm. you chopped 10 minutes out and then you have to sort of don't talk fast you have to go. well I have to remove some of the story so which bits can I throw sure. away and I think the thing so you have to learn real economy of delivery and that's what I was trying to do because actually trying to cram more in fast isn't better communication Mm. and the thing is the people in the audience don't know what you've taken out and that's what you've got to remember when you're doing any artistic thing so when we when we discuss tomorrow which bits we're dropping from the documentary no doubt at some point me or the producer will go oh that's a lovely bit we can't possibly take that out but we need to lose two minutes it's going but people don't know what's on the cutting room floor right they don't you know people aren't listening to go oh uh, that two minutes I don't know exists, but they deleted. I wish it was there. <laughs> so you have to kind of bear in mind that people don't know what you cut out.
1: Now, the, the uh, in what was altogether a lovely talk and presentation yesterday, you did leave us with a slightly creepy bit at the end, with the simulation of Donald Trump, um, president of the United States, kind of, but it wasn't him, you know, reading something ridiculous. But it sounded real close. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you're just talking about, um, auditory illusions. Can you expand a little more on, you know, where you see us trending with kind of simulate and, you know, with Siri and Alexa and and other things you were mentioning yesterday, you know, imagine, and you've worked for for the BBC, you know, imagine in a, a kind of pseudo Orwellian world where, you know, you just have newscasters that are completely computer simulated. Basically, we're not hiring on air talent anymore because saving money and costs like or just can you kind of describe the world you see well the fun- maybe coming or not coming in that kind i of- mean the funny thing is people are
2: mm-hmm. assuming you're interviewing dr cox but dr cox is left actually and i'm just uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm just
2: interviewing my my alter ego robot no sorry um, it was all in the matrix folks yeah so absolutely taking that pill um So, where are we going to? Well, BBC already uses artificial voices on certain things. Okay. So, we have the World Service where we broadcast in lots of different languages, and it's it's just not economic to have newscasters in all the languages. So, what they're doing is using translation engines and then using artificial voices to voice in unusual languages. Mm. So, this is already bbc's already basically doing what i just described yeah but just a little bit i mean there's been some experiments of actually uh having interviewers and interviewees being artificial intelligence things and it's really awful Um, okay it's the discursive conversation it doesn't work um and you don't connect as a human so i i think a radio presenter's job is probably fairly safe um but as i said it's that sort of kind of automatic generation of material where you can't justify the cost. I mean, already you have in America, you have. I'm trying to remember the news agency generates sports reports by algorithms. Yes. I can't remember which one it
1: being, is now. I, I can't either, but it is being experimented with, and they started in sports, I think. If my facts can be corrected if, if they're not there, but I think they're trying to experiment with, you know, routinized information, like, you know, financial financial reports. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's
2: been done. T- things and, like
1: that. And the thing is, if I, I support an obscure team, a uh, soccer
2: team in Britain, that'll never make the mainstream papers. Which one is it? Uh, Bristol Rovers. Okay. There we go. Right down near the almost the lowest of the low, but still just about <laughs> professional. Um, and um, so they'll never get reports because they're just too low in the sure. divisions. But online I can easily read reports generated and which will give you the you know and can sound quite human give you the bare facts of who scored Mm -hmm. and when you know and what it means to your league position you can fake that quite well now in algorithms so I think some of this we'll see more and more this shortcut to cut costs kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but it will also result in some improved information being out there.
1: But I think the risk, what I was kind of talking about yesterday, and where people can listen to it over the car when they can't, don't have time to read it, for example, Absolutely. Or, as new, or as newspapers kind of fall off and go out of print or whatever.
2: But what I was trying to illustrate with that sample of Donald mm-hmm. Donald Trump that Matthew Aylott kindly uh, let me use um, is that we're going to get this thing where we're faking voices, so that you're listening to a voice that. You think is someone and it isn't. Now, of course, that's always been possible. You can get an impersonator to do it. Um, so that's always been to a certain extent possible. But now, you know, you have to work quite hard for a long time to be impersonator. More and more technologies will be there where it will be at the fingertips of the masses to do such things. It's not there yet. It's quite, you know, it's quite a lot of technology required. But, you know, you look at Russian trolling farms, they've definitely got the knowledge if they want to do that
1: kind of stuff. Um, well, and- the scenarios you can imagine are like, Someone simulates my mother's voice, calls me saying, you know, she des- she's in an emergency and desperately needs my credit card number. Absolutely. And the thing, I think one of the things which is a bit pernicious about
2: this is that if they leave a voicemail on your mobile, you might assume it's the mobile phone line which is causing the glitches in the voice and not the synthesis algorithm mm. that's generating it. And that's one of the reasons the Donald Trump algorithm, work, you know, what I played you, works better in the auditorium than it does just sure. over headphones is because... The room kind of makes, you know, smooths out some of the, some of some of the imperfections. And similarly, we're all used to being on Skype on a mobile or so cell we're in America here, um, and hearing those glitches. So if the voice has got glitches, which sell a bit, sound a bit like a cell phone line, you you might assume. Um, so we, yes, we are going to get more of those phishing scams. They will be more effective, but you will get used to it in the same way as we got used mm-hmm. to email phishing scams. And okay, so people do fall for it, but a relatively small number. And it will be an arms race. I mean, they'll right? And these, you mentioned that, yeah, there'll be an arms mean. race where they'll produce new technologies, and then some more. So you know, I was at a conference in Brighton. There was loads of things about ways of detecting this. But no doubt, once you've worked out how to detect it, we'll move on to the a better way of of simulating it. But I think now, if you listen to it as a human, what's currently there, you can tell it's not them if you listen to it over a nice pair of headphones because the human voice is quite hard to simulate. So we're not quite there, but we're edging ever
1: closer. Right.
2: And, and it I think- has
1: political implications too, like if you could fake fake a gotcha moment and drop, and drop it to the press or so, on your opponent or something like that. But with what you're mentioning with how sophisticated it is, can you kind of explain i remember having like sight compared the what we can see and how our brain processes that is just orders of magnitude behind the part of our brain and its ability to process sound can you kind of speak to that that our that our sonic kind of ability to process and sensitivity is is better than our ocular ocular sense well they're kind of different so um we 're very visually dominated, so True.
2: when we see something it, it kind of overrides what we hear quite a lot mm. um, and uh so our brain kind of sort of kind of prioritizes what it sees, and the and the sound is more like a contextual thing quite often um but the difference between vision and sound is as a, a sort of time based thing for sound. you can't hear a snippet of sound which is like a picture, I mean a picture is a snapshot of zero time length. So it's very pompous way of saying it, but anyway, it has has no time. Sound with no time has no meaning, and so what your brain has to do, which is more sophisticated in, in audio, is deal with the fact that the signal is going on over time, and that makes it more complicated or more difficult to deal with. So I don't know if I would say that the image processing is less or more sophisticated. It's just kind of different. Mm. But there's, a, you know, we, we, we tend to sort of separate out in science, here's people who do vision, here's people who do sound and things like that. But our brain doesn't do that separation. I mean, ultimately, all the information is in and it makes a global decision about what it does. And, it, you know, so, but as I said, it tends to reinforce
1: that, that, that the visual takes priority. Well, and then the last thing I'll leave with, I think, because our time is coming relatively short. But um, you you were mentioning stuff about accents yesterday, both in the presentation and then at our lunch afterwards. And I just wondered, and I kind of told you my story of you know living between um, Britain and here, and kind of how I dealt with that through through basically taking on an accent consciously. Can you? Um, how hard is it to kind of basically? Trans, transfer from one accent to the other? Do you kind of know stories of people who have done this? Or, and I mean, obviously you live in Manchester now, but grew up in Bristol. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I wonder how much, and you spoke to that a little bit yesterday, I wonder how much of the Manchester accent you've taken on. But like you said, your tw- your twin boys have, you know, have that accent as a mm-hmm. native one. So can you just speak of kind of how plastic... The brain is, as far as adapting to accents based on where you're living or, or what you have to do,
2: it seems to vary quite a lot between individuals. So some people have a more, you know, their, their, their accents change more readily than others. It also changes during your lifetime. So I moved to Manchester in adulthood, so therefore my accent had kind of been fairly fixed. I think once you get to kind of college age, your accent doesn't change that much And mm-hmm. most people. It's, it's you've probably got the voice you have. It may be some changes. Um, some of the dialect changes. So you've got accent, which is kind of how you say the words, but dialect is the kind of words you might use. And so you, you bring, you know, I, I gave an example last night where, you know, what is a ginnel? I'm sure that is an American term, but it's a northern term for an alleyway. So there's all these dialect terms that kind of actually give away where you come from actually more readily than your accent in many ways. Mm-hmm. The sorts of kind of nuances of the words that you use. Um so accents tend to be fairly fixed in their global sense, but they we naturally vary the strength of them as we move around. So as I go back to Bristol, my voice will be slightly more Bristolian. And when I go to Manchester, it'll be slightly more Mancunian. Um, and that naturally happens. What I think's funny is when a politician does this. So, I mean, Hillary Clinton had this in the last presidential campaign, got lambasted for her voice
1: changing as she moved around the country. When Obama got lambasted for dropping his G's, you know, depending on where he was. Same, yeah, I
2: mean, I, I, we picked two Democratic examples, but we could pick a Republican example. It happens to politicians on both sides of the divide. Um, but it's quite natural, actually, just to do that. But, of course... When you're looking for, why is this politician not trustworthy? You know, he's, he's pulling, or you know, she's pulling the you know the, the wool over your eyes. Then an accent that changes is kind of fits into that narrative. Mm-hmm. And so
1: it tends to get... And you're saying from, it's is slightly more common than maybe we give a yeah, political candidate credit for. Common.
2: Yeah, much more common. I mean, to give you an example, I, I I remember I brought the family across to America. It's the only time my boys have ever come across. And they just laughed at the fact I switched into American terms. I wouldn't say rubbish, I'd say trash. And they said dad why are you talking like an american and it's just it's easier because i don't have to repeat myself to the americans every time sure and you just do this naturally and uh, i've noticed it again coming back here because i'm thinking a lot about the voice yeah i just switch into a slightly american way of talking i don't adopt an american accent but i use the american terminology because it's just life is too short to,
1: <laughs> to have to keep saying things see on the other end well With that, um, you've been listening to Dr. Trevor Cox at Chautauqua Institution in the Cohen Recording Studio. My name is Dr. Chris Daly, head of audio for the Chautauqua Amphitheater. Have a wonderful day, and thank you, Dr. Cox, for gracing us with your presence on this side of the pond. It's been wonderful to be here.
0: Thanks to Trevor Cox for joining us on CHQ&A today, and to interviewer Christopher Daly, who during the day serves as the Chautauqua Amphitheater Head of Audio. Our producer for this episode was Robert Jackson. This particular program may appear in part or in full on the airwaves of our partner stations, WJTN and WRFA in Jamestown, New York. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded and edited in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.